It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. You're listening to Riddle Me That, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Zodiac Speaking, All Things Crime, and DNA ID. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Riddle Me That is a true crime podcast that deals with adult themes. Some episodes explore disturbing topics such as murder, abuse, sexual violence, drug abuse, suicide, and self-harm. Please listen at your own risk. Theories discussed in episodes may not be the opinion of the host. Welcome back to the show. I'm Jules, and this is Riddle Me That True Crime. So I'm joined again by Caprice from the Unseen Podcast. Caprice, do you want to give everyone a quick recap? Yeah, this is part two about the unsolved murder of TV presenter Jill Dando in 1999. In the first part of our coverage of the case, we looked at Jill's life and career, her tragic murder on her own doorstep, and the huge investigation that followed her death. If you haven't already listened to part one of this story, it's important that you go back and listen now. Without any further ado, let's get right back into it. In the months following the murder of Jill Dando outside her home in Gowan Avenue in Fulham, the police were faced with a mountain of information to sift through. Operation Oxborough, which was set up to investigate Jill's murder, was working tirelessly to gain any information about what had taken place. Can you imagine like all of the tip lines, all of the police stations, you know, all of these different programs like Crime Watch that are featuring the story? They're going to be absolutely inundated with information and flooded with tips. 
the amount of manpower and resources it would take to actually go through parsing through all these calls, these, this information, trying to find what's credible, it's mind boggling. Well, I think that's what had been hindering the investigation because they had been facing some problems as the crime happened midday on a Monday morning in a residential street, but nobody appeared to have seen the murder. The police had turned to the public with a reconstruction on the same show that Jill had presented and worked so hard on before her death, Crime Watch. The reconstruction created a lot of tips from the public and the phone lines were constantly ringing with information. The media attention and scrutiny the case was getting threw up problems for the police as they struggled to figure out what information was relevant and what had little to do with the crime. Like, I bet if we went back and we looked at the covers of all of the tabloids, like, I don't know, what are they? Like the mirror, the standard, like all of these different British tabloids, you know better than I do, but I'm sure. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Like their covers were probably all plastered with Jill Dando's face. So the amount of pressure that the police were getting to solve this, because not only is the public interested because she's so beloved, you know, we spoke earlier of there being parallels to Princess Diana, but now you've got this wider audience that's taking notice of Jill's case because of the interest by the press. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think it brings out everybody. So any tips that are coming in have got to be looked into, but... Sadly, like the majority of them are not going to be anything to do with it. They're going to be people just inserting themselves in that don't have anything to do with it. And the police have to spend the time going through every single tip, you know, through fear of missing something. You know, they wouldn't want to be in the public missing a tip. But can you imagine, so, though, how long that would take if you're getting thousands upon thousands of tips? The amount of manpower, time, resources that this takes to find those few, like it's finding a needle in a haystack, finding something that working off some kind of actionable intelligence, something that might lead to a suspect. They're hoping that they find it, but it might not even be there. No, no. And they, you know, they've got to, as I said, look at everything because the amount of pressure, you know, from the papers to find a lead, find, find a suspect. I can't imagine it, it will have been a really difficult investigation. And due to the lack of forensic evidence, they were forced to analyse all of that information that had come in from the public. And as the first year anniversary of the murder came around, the police decided to look back at the tips that had come in in the hours and days after Jill's murder in the hope that something would link to the crime. I mean, this tells us something. This tells us that when they went through the tips the first time, maybe they missed something, but also there probably was very little credible information. Like you just said, I'm sure the majority of people were either well-meaning and that they thought mm -hmm. they might be able to offer something, or we have the other type of people who just think, oh, let me insert myself into this investigation regarding this celebrity. Yeah. And, it, you know, they, they'd got a lot of press coverage for Jill, which was great, but that didn't necessarily help sometimes, I think. I mean, there was a, a second Crime Watch appeal, which seemed to bring in fresh new leads. And the investigators had begun working under the theory that the murderer could have been someone with an unhealthy obsession with Jill. The idea of a stalker becoming obsessed with a celebrity wasn't unusual. And they discovered there were, in fact, a number of men that had showed an exaggerated interest in her. Like, this just makes me think of something I read recently about Kendall Jenner, how she had to basically leave her house at a moment's notice without basically packing anything because of this threat of this malicious stalker who'd, I don't know if it had been, they tried to gain entry on multiple occasions, but I think there was a two-time threat which led up to her having to leave her home. 
So that's just one example, but there's, you know, a myriad of examples with regards to famous individuals. They tend to get that kind of unwelcome attention from certain people that may be mentally unwell. And it's not unreasonable for the investigators or for the public to assume that Jill could have had a stalker or there could have been somebody with an unhealthy obsession with her. No, I was just reading an article the other day about another BBC presenter. I think she's BBC anyway. And she'd been being stalked for over 20 years by the same person. Wow. Um, and he knew the, who the person was, but there was just nothing, nothing that, that could be done to kind of keep him away from her. That's it's scary. And, you know, senior officers in this case, they poured over the list of suspects for months and the list didn't seem to be getting any smaller. The idea of a stranger murder had terrified and concerned the police as these types of crimes are the most difficult to solve and they were worried about any suspects slipping through the cracks. Stalking as a crime is only just becoming an important part of legislation. And in 1999, it wasn't well pinned down by police as a concept. Yeah, that's the really problematic thing, right? Like we see this time and time again. We see it in America where there's plenty of states where stalking laws were really, really minimal, especially when when we look in the 90s, the early aughts. And it almost takes people getting killed by their stalkers for the legislators to kind of impart this new legislation to pass new mm-hmm. bills, new stalking laws that is going to protect people. But I, I'm really unfamiliar with what the stalking laws are like in the UK. Well, stalking became a crime in 2012 here, but just last year, the police have brought in a new stalking protection order, which means that if you think you are being stalked, it can come in immediately and it can be in place for up to two years. So that's where we're kind of at at the moment. It's, it's, it is becoming more of a prevalent thing and, you know, in the media and being talked about, but it is, it was only, it only became a crime in 2012. That's really interesting. Like That's so recent. That's nine mm-hmm. years ago to think that, yeah. you know, stalking has been a pervasive problem. I can only assume that, you know, statistics are misleading, but I would assume that stalking in America, stalking in, you know, England, stalking in Canada would be relatively similar if we were to compare them. So mm-hmm. only to go nine years back, I, my heart just goes out to anybody I mean, personally, I've experienced a couple different situations that have been stalking-like behavior over my life. And so I can completely relate to what these people are feeling, not as Jill, the famous person, but what it feels like to be powerless in that situation. And when you are the object of somebody's affection whom you don't even really know. Yeah. Well, statistics, they show that how prevalent it is, you know, in people's lives and how important it is to be aware of its danger. Paladin, the National Stalking Advocacy Service in the UK, describes stalking as a pattern of persistent, unwanted behaviour that's intrusive and engenders fear. Their website describes that as many as one in five women and one in 10 men in the UK will have been stalked at some point in their lives. That's a really scary statistic. I'm mm-hmm. What I'm really shocked with here, I'm not shocked with one in five women. That sounds about right, as disgusting and disturbing as that is, that I feel like that's a normal number. That is problematic in and of itself. But the one in 10 men, that's 10% of men. I had no Uh, idea. I was surprised by that as well. Yeah. I think everybody would be. I just don't think you you necessarily expect it, but I suppose you can kind of assume. Yeah. And like what I find the most interesting, because when we look at male sexual assault victims, we see an extreme amount of underreporting. 
And we see so many that come out and report this far later, like 20 years later or whatever. So statistics don't genuinely reflect the amount of sexual assaults on males. So I wonder if the stalking statistics accurately reflect the stalking situations with males. Probably not. No, I don't think any statistics do, do they, like you say? No, Um, they're misleading. It's quite scary that the statistics show like how terrifying but prevalent it is. The idea of a stalker dedicated to figuring out Jill's movements could explain how the perpetrator knew she was going to return home on that Monday morning. However, it was a theory that couldn't be proven for certain. The police had taken time to investigate the idea of stalking and according to David James Smith's book, they went to the lengths to visit the US to find out more about stalking. They visited the LAPD's stalking unit and met with J. Reed Malloy, a leading authority on stalking and who had published the first academic work on the subject. Through their research investigation, the police were more certain that they were looking for someone that was not in Jill's immediate circle of friends and family. Yeah, I think with regards to stalking, it's not always somebody close to you, right? Like statistically speaking, if someone's going to murder you or do harm to you as a regular citizen, it's usually somebody you know. But for Jill, she's exceptional in the sense that she's out there. There's plenty of people that may feel as though they know her. So I think the probability of it being somebody outside her circle is quite high. And I think that's what made it difficult. You know, um, a stranger murder obviously is so difficult to, to prove, so difficult to find a suspect for. And they had this huge list of suspects, which didn't help. And it didn't seem to be getting any smaller every time they tried to narrow it down. You'd think a stranger murder in like any typical scenario that involves a stranger murder, it is so difficult because there's no connection to these people. There's maybe many degrees of separation. But the issue here is this guy did this in the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. So one would think, okay, yes, it is a stranger murder, but he did this right out in the open in this brazen way. He just committed this murder. Just witnesses saw him, and yet we still can't make this connection. And law enforcement really had to be feeling the heat here. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't one of the men on the original suspect list that eventually caught the attention of the police. It was a man whose name had been put forward in a number of tips to police early in the investigation. The tips are coming from Hafad, the Hammersmith and Fulham Action for Disability, and the charity was based around 10 minutes away from Jill's home at Gowan Avenue. Well, this is already sounding kind of like an offside. Like we had somebody who's described as blending in within the community. And the fact that this guy's name's put forward, I have a feeling you're going to tell everybody why, but it's probably going to be for reasons other than him just blending in seamlessly. Yes. As we'll go into, there was multiple tips that talk about him not blending in. So Exactly, it is definitely against what the police knew about the crime. But Detective Constable John Gallagher had been assigned by DCI Hamish Campbell to look back at the tips that had come in in the early days. Detective Constable Gallagher came across a tip that came in not long after the murder had occurred. The original tip from Hafad had described that a man had visited their offices on the 26th of April, the same day as Jill's murder, wanting to discuss a disabled concessionary pass for taxis. The same man had then returned on Wednesday the 28th and had become agitated and moody. The person who'd given the tip would not give his name due to client confidentiality. It would later be said his visit was at 12 o'clock on the Monday of Jill's murder. This could not be remembered by the person giving the tip. So the person gives this tip about this guy 
But when they give the tip, they don't give a time. So this time is added at a later date. Yes. So do we know if it's at a later date because it's like it could be substantiated by like surveillance footage or something else? Or was it just sort of like everything else fits? This guy looks good. Let's just add this time frame because it's convenient. I think it's due to the other tips that come in afterwards from other people at Hafad, at the charity. So another tip had come in about the same man on the 12th of May, 1999. This tip had come in from the charity to state the man who had visited there on the 26th had come in again on the 12th at around 11am. The caller would later change this to around midday instead. The caller described that she thought this man looked like the e-fit she'd seen that had been done of the suspect. This caller also gave the man's name as Bulsara, and it would be three days later that the name Barry Bulsara would be officially listed in the system. The reason that they're giving this guy, you know, putting this guy forward as a potential suspect is because he became agitated. Like, you know, we said earlier, this Mm -hmm. is somebody who blended in within the community, not somebody who's angry, walking around, standing out. He's being pointed out because he stands out. But this perpetrator blends in. He seems to be the antithesis of what the person who committed this murder was like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem strange that these tips would have been looked at so closely, I think. Seems strange they would pinpoint these as being, I'm guessing it's the proximity of the charity to Jill's house and the fact that he'd been in on that day. I'm guessing that's why it was important. But about a week after the tip called in on the 12th of May, another call from Hafad was made to police. This time it was a healthcare worker who worked for the charity who explained that her first client on the 26th of April had been Barry Bulsara. She described that he appeared agitated and got more so when she explained she couldn't see him that day. She recalled this was around 11.50am and she'd been with him around 15 to 20 minutes. She also added that she didn't think that he looked like the E-fit, but he definitely seemed agitated to her. Well, we had a pretty good description of what the individual who did this to Jill was wearing and all of those sorts of things, that really good description of that jacket that we went into so much in part one, right? What was the brand of it again? A barber jacket. A barber jacket. Okay, we've got this great description and we've got this guy who's just kind of breezing through the neighborhood. It's, you know, if somebody's agitated or they're in a distressed mental state, you've got Jill's neighborhood. It's relatively affluent. You've got people who are at home. You know, somebody like that, I think, would stand out. But the fact that nobody could 100% describe this guy to the point where the e-fit they knew would be helpful, I think that just speaks to the way that he was able to be kind of a chameleon and just blend into his environment. And this Mm -hmm. guy just doesn't sound, Barry just does not sound like that at all. No, and it interests me that he was, he he did regularly, it seems, go to Hafad, the charity. And yet lots of people seem to ring up and say he seemed different than usual. But from what we find out later, that behavior wasn't unusual for him. So I don't really know why so many people ring up the police about this. It, it seems a bit strange. But despite the different information, DC John Gallagher believed this was something he should look into as lots of people from the same workplace had rang in the tip. The charity was also very close to the crime scene in Gowan Avenue and he decided to search for the name Barry Bulsara at both Scotland Yard and Hammersmith Police Station to check any criminal history. It was discovered that this name was actually an alias as Barry Bulsara cross-referenced to the name Barry George. It would turn out that Barry Bulsara's name had been on the list of suspects that the police had collated during the investigation, 
but his name had been low priority to them as his name Barry Bulsara had not pulled up anything alarming in his history. Well, I guess that makes sense, right? If he's going by an alias, the police are going to run this name. Nothing comes up. You're not going to assume that this is an alias. And do we know anything about the kind of identification that he had? Did he have like ID to back up this Barry Bulsara name? Or did they just not ask for this? I don't know, to be honest. I know, you know, he went by different aliases and Bulsara was one of the ones he usually went by, but I don't think, I'm guessing he wouldn't have had identification with that as his name. I don't know whether the police just didn't, didn't ask for it. He just said, that's my name and that was it. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Yeah, he doesn't sound to be the most sophisticated of offenders. You know what I mean? There's a criminal history. This guy doesn't really speak sophistication. So the idea that he would go and, you know, procure this other identification for his alias, it just seems kind of outside the realm of what he would be capable of doing. When they looked into Barry George, his criminal history, when they actually found his correct name, things did come up of interest. He was born in 1960 and was just a year older than Jill. He was known to suffer from epilepsy at an early age, and this had affected his speech. He gained employment in 1976, working for the BBC as a messenger, and had been happy and proud of his job. When that job ended, Barry struggled to gain any other employment and enjoyed finding different aliases to go by, which he would use now and again. So do we know if he was dismissed from this job at the BBC or if it was just sort of like a contract job and the contract ended? Do we know anything about that? I I don't know. I, I wasn't able to really find out much about that. We just know that he did work for the BBC and he, had, he obviously had an interest in, in doing that kind of thing. But whether yeah, it just ended as a job or, you know, obviously he didn't leave. So I'm, I'm unsure really what happened there. Because I can see if he was fired, how the police could kind of think of that as a motive for somebody who would be mentally unstable. If you're trying to like exact revenge on the BBC, who is somebody that kind of, you know, represents the BBC, I would think that Jill Dando would be a pretty good face or a pretty good representation of the BBC. I, I mean, I don't know, but 
I think that you, they could pretty easily formulate a motive if that's what they believed. Like he'd been terminated, he's unhappy, he wants to do some damage, and this is the way he chose to exact his revenge. I, I don't know, because we just don't know this information. I think it was in 1976 he started working there. And from what I can tell, when he was being looked at by police, he hadn't had that job. He hadn't had a job, I don't think, for for a little bit. So it was quite a bit before, I think, Jill Dando. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting, but we're not... I don't think we've got the information, really, to say if it's got anything to do with it. But David James Smith discusses in his book that Barry George used his many aliases to do a number of things that drew attention of the public. He'd once even performed as a stuntman in 1981 under the name Steve Majors. That's so funny because when I keep hearing the name Barry George, it reminds me of Boy George and George Michael. I have no idea why, but I just get this like picture of both of them in my head. So it's interesting he's got this work as a stuntman under the name Steve Majors. I mean, Barry George is a pretty good name. I don't know why he didn't just stick with that. No, he did. I'm sure there's something about George Michael because he did choose kind of celebrity names and things like that for his aliases. But he'd performed a stunt in front of Anglian News in which he attempted to do a jump over several double-decker buses using just roller skates. He drew in crowds of people despite having no experience as a stuntman. He did the jump and crashed into a pile of wooden boards that were placed between the buses. He injured his femur and spine but still roller skated away from the scene. So what we're seeing here is somebody who clearly, or it appears, really does enjoy that attention and he's willing to put kind of life and limb at risk in order to get either praise or even if it's negative attention, even if it's people saying, this is stupid, what are you doing? You've injured yourself. And you also have to wonder if he's doing stunts like this at some point, he's injured his spine, he's injured his femur. Did he get a head injury at some point? We just don't Mm -hmm. know this information, right? No, and he's definitely a, an interesting character. You know, he's, he's somebody that stands out, as we were saying. You know, he, he isn't blending in. He no. wants to do things to stand out. <laughs> they, they also they found some things that alarmed them about his character. In the early 1980s, Barry George had been accused of two indecent assaults on women in the Kensington area of London. He was acquitted of one of these assaults and convicted of the other. In 1983, he was stopped by police for acting suspiciously at Kensington Palace when he was found near the palace gates with a length of rope and a knife and wearing military clothing. The police held him overnight and searched his property. There's so much to unpack with both of those incidents. Okay, so first, we've got these two indecent assaults on women. So in the UK, is like an indecent assault like a sexual assault or what is it exactly? Yeah, usually. Okay. Yeah. So he could have, Do we don't know any more information, like if he attempted rape or anything regarding this, just that there was two incidents and one of them he was acquitted. So I guess for legal purposes, it doesn't count. But when we're trying to see a pattern with regards to the way he treats women, it's extremely problematic and we must consider that. Well, in the same year that he was found at Kensington Palace, he was arrested and charged with the rape of a student who had walked to her parents' house. He pleaded guilty to attempted rape and served 30 months in prison. In the years following, Barry was noticed by police officers for following women and attempting to approach them in the street. But as he had used so many aliases, he didn't always flag up on the system. Like, this is a bit of a problem here. Like, we have to believe that this guy didn't have the financial resources, like we said earlier, in order to procure a new identity for all of these different aliases. So do we have a situation where police aren't really doing their due diligence when they see him stalking women? Either they're asking for identification 
And then Barry George is saying, you know, you know, or Bulsara, whoever you want to call him, he's saying that, oh, I don't have it or whatever he's saying. And they don't go, okay, well, let's go to your home. You need to show me this identification. It feels like he's potentially let off during these stalking type scenarios too easily without police digging into it more. But we're seeing a pattern here and it's really, really disturbing. So you can see why they did latch on to him as a suspect because he was known to have this criminal history. And when they found that, it was obviously quite shocking. They also found that he was a regular visitor at accident and emergency units of hospitals, often presenting with symptoms of fits and seizures and eager to discuss his medical history. He was living at 2B Crookham Road and was known by some of the people who lived in the nearby area of Fulham. He was a complex person and one that due to his criminal history has made his way to the top of the suspect list. The problem was, how was there any connection to Jill's murder? What was his motive and how could he have possibly carried it out? I mean, he's basically, Barry Bulsara is living with epilepsy. It's like an electrical storm of the brain and that he could have seizures at any point in time. And we see him as this person who seems to really like attention. So, you know, he could be the person who could have something like Munchausen syndrome. We know that he genuinely does have epilepsy, but he likes that attention from nurses and doctors. And he's so excited to discuss his medical history. So do we, we don't actually know if these conditions that he's presenting to them are in fact genuine. But again, we see this person who needs attention, whether from doctors and nurses or from the public, right? But yeah, like to what you said earlier, I absolutely can see why initially the police latched onto this. But when you look a little bit deeper, you don't see a sexual assault on Jill. You see all of these other women, they were stalked. But then we see these basic indecent assaults, the one he was convicted of and the one he was acquitted of. But it seems to be like a sexually based motive for those other actions. So the fact that he would just walk up to her, shoot her, and there was no sexual assault doesn't really seem to line up. It seems like they're grasping a little bit. They knew at the time that the odd behavior of the suspect and just criminal history was not enough to suggest that he was Jill's murderer. DC Gallagher went to Barry George's house to see him after learning about this information, but nobody was in. So he left a note for Barry to contact them. In the meantime, the police were continuing to comb through the tips that had come in early in the investigation. The police at this time revealed that there had been some unusual activity that had been linked to Jill in the months leading up to her murder. They found out that some months before the murder, a woman with the last name Dando and the first initial J had been called by an anonymous man. The man had asked lots of questions about Jill Dando, hoping that this Jay Dando was the TV presenter. Jay Dando was not, however, Jill, and they just happened to have the same last name and initial. Yeah, but I can imagine that happened all the time. If there was a yeah. phone book, like if it's a celebrity, people are going to go looking up, you know, names of Selena Gomez or Britney Spears or whomever. Who do you have in the UK? Jason Statham. Whoever, right? They're, they're going to look up these names and be like, ooh, I really hope that I'm calling the real Jason Statham. I'm sure that happens all the time. So if yeah. something were to happen to him, I'm sure you could look and there would be all of this problematic behavior by different fans. So I'm sure that was, they're just, they've got their work cut out for them here. Well, that lead didn't go very far, as you can imagine. And it was difficult to establish who this person was and why they might have been trying to contact her. The police did discover some new information that related to Barry George and his whereabouts on the 26th of April. The information had come in from a local taxi firm. The caller who made the tip described that Barry George had come into the taxi rank that day around 1pm and had asked for a free taxi ride. 
This had been dismissed by the drivers until they realised they needed to go that way to pick up a parcel anyway and decided to take him. Well, that's a really nice taxi driver. They're just like, "Ah, I'm going that direction. Sure, pal, hop in. The driver said Barry asked lots of odd and mundane questions about the colour of the sky and the sun, and the driver thought it was strange. The taxi driver also made a comment that Barry had discussed Jill, and the driver thought this was odd in hindsight after the murder. The tip had been missed at the time as there was no connection between the information and Barry George. So do we know if there have been, like at this point prior to Jill's murder, has there been a psychiatrist to assess him? Like, is there any mental health diagnosis or underlying pathology at play here? Because those are very strange questions. Well, it would later be discovered that he had quite a low IQ and that he he struggled. That was why he was going to the disability charity. He did struggle to understand certain things and he did find it hard to kind of get by day to day socially. That was that was one thing that he, he did find difficult. Yeah, it seems pretty clear just by his interactions with people that it seems like he's not very cued into social cues. You know what I mean? Like his interaction at the, what was the name of the um, HAFAD, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. His interactions with people there, they seem to be a little bizarre. His interaction with the taxi driver and then the way he's treating women, he doesn't seem to be able to have or to formulate any kind of healthy or meaningful relationships with the opposite sex. And that seems to be really problematic in his life. Yeah. And I think that was what the police were trying to find out more about was this a a dangerous situation obviously in the past he had been or was he just behaving oddly that day for other reasons but the connection between the information and Barry George only came up when the police managed to catch up with him and interview him for the first time just under a year after the murder the police conducted the interview and asked him about his whereabouts on the 26th of April as documented in David James's book Barry explained that he'd left at around 12.30 and had walked to the Hafad offices to get advice on housing benefits. He'd then gone to the taxi office and had got a taxi to Colon Cancer Advice Service to get a leaflet. He then said he went home and stayed there until early evening when he visited his neighbour who told him about Jill Dando's death. He also stated that he didn't know Jill Dando or that she lived nearby. When asked, Barry said that he had been in the Territorial Army and knew how to use a gun. The police officers listened carefully to the story and then said that they would take him back to his house. One thing that really strikes me as odd here, because we know, I'm pretty sure for a fact, that basically Barry Bolsara does not have colon cancer. So is he a hypochondriac? Is he Munchausen in order to get the attention of doctors and nurses? I find this kind of bizarre because there is no colon cancer link, is there? No, he did go to accident and emergency departments quite a lot, you know, to say that he had symptoms, he was having these problems. And he it's reported that he liked to talk about his medical history, he liked to talk about how he'd been ill and what had happened to him. So I think, you know, possibly there were some elements of that. Yeah, that just seems like a bizarre thing that really stands out to me. But also pointing out that he was in the territorial army. Do we know that he actually was in the Territorial Army or is this like, I was a spy in the CIA? Well, the Territorial Army was more of a reserve unit. So I think he may well have been, but he probably didn't actually do anything in the Territorial Army. You know, he he probably, you know, he he may have joined, but not actually been there to, to do any sort of training. We don't know. 
That makes sense because you would think for, you know, admittance into the army, there would be a certain type of psych evaluation, just a basic one to see if you're mentally fit for duty. Yeah, it's more of like a a volunteer place where you can go and get kind of training and, you know, kind of schools can go and get like kind of army-esque training and that kind of thing. So he may well have been, but why it came up in conversation, I'm not entirely sure. The police dropped him off at his home and they went inside the house to see the coat that Barry said he was wearing on the day the murder happened. The police noticed that his house was full of boxes and newspapers when they entered. They saw the coat and left that particular day. Barry's story didn't differ much from the information that they'd heard from the tips and the story seemed cohesive. The police, however, believed the story created a firm link between Barry George and the information from the taxi company. This link and other information that had been discovered about him meant the police believed they had enough evidence to get a search warrant for Barry George's house. Yeah, I get this. The proximity, the fact that all these people are calling up with these tips. I would think for, you know, conviction, no. I don't know if it's enough for arrest, but I would think, sure, a lot of judges are going to grant you a search warrant for this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So around a week after they first visited Barry George's house, the police entered his home a second time and searched for anything of interest to the investigation. Barry wasn't home at the time and the police forced their way into the house. They began looking for anything that matched the description of the clothes that the tipsters had said he might have been wearing. They removed the coat that Barry himself had said he had on at that time and they found huge piles of newspapers, some containing the news of Jill Dando's death. I mean, I bet you if you would have gone to plenty of Brits houses, you probably would have found clippings of Jill Dando's death in maybe 10% of homes. Like, I'm just throwing that statistic out there. And I'm also going to apologize to anybody. if I keep saying Barry George and then Barry Bulsara. I keep getting his alias and his actual name confused. So (laughs) my apologies there. But yeah, don't you think that this would be not that bizarre? No, I don't think it's strange at all. He clearly collected newspapers, magazines and that kind of thing, and he clearly hoarded them in his house by the sounds of it. But of course, there's going to be ones with Jill Dando in. And even before her death, there might be ones with Jill Dando in, but it doesn't mean that he was collecting them for that reason. I do find that a bit of a tenuous link. Yeah, I think because if they would have gone to all these other homes and searched all these other places, I think when you want it to fit, you try to make it fit. It's like that confirmation bias. Like, oh, we're looking at this guy for Jill Dando's murder. There's clippings to do with her death. Perfect. Nail this guy. Yeah, it's like tunnel vision. They've just, you know, thought this is what we're going to find and we're going to take anything that looks, you know, that to us looks suspicious, but actually could just be quite innocent. Yeah. They did find a number of documents pertaining to firearms and their prices, but it was noted that these seemed years old. The police also discovered a number of rolls of undeveloped film, which, according to David James's Smith's book, contained 2,597 photos of 419 different women. I mean, this doesn't mean that he's a killer of Jill Dando. We already know mm-hmm. that Barry has problematic relations with women. He has that conviction for indecent assault. The other one he was acquitted of, but then we have all those different instances of stalking. So the fact that he's collecting this, like, creepy collage or creepy book of all of these women, I find it really disturbing, but I don't find it indicative of him being the killer of Jill. No, it's an awful lot of circumstantial evidence that, yeah, points to him, as we've saying, having having issues with certain things and obviously following women, which is not acceptable, but it it doesn't point to him being the murderer. It was clear to the police at this point that 
he, you know, he'd been following and watching women for a while. There was also a number of photos of Barry holding a gun, wearing military attire. Investigators felt that they may have hit a big break in the case, as Barry George appeared to have a lot of features that they were looking for in a suspect. An interest in stalking or following women, an interest in firearms, and witnesses that could put him near the scene of the crime on that day. Like we just said, tunnel vision and confirmation yeah. bias, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, he was near the crime scene. He lived near the crime scene. <laughs> exactly. The, the disability charity was near the crime scene. But there were lots of places near to the crime scene in Fulham. So it, it does feel a bit like it was, we've got our man, let's try and prove it. Yeah, like weak and tenuous. Like there's literally nothing concrete here. Even the circumstantial evidence, in my opinion, is really weak. Well, the issue was that there was there was no conclusive evidence putting him at the scene of the crime. And despite his apparent interest in guns, the possible murder weapon or any weapon at all wasn't found at the address. The police removed the items they thought were useful to the investigation. The items were photographed away from Barry's house and then bagged up and sent to the forensic lab to be analysed. Yeah, the fact that this guy seems so disorganised, he seems kind of all over the place, he seems maybe mentally not well... We know that he's got a low IQ. So are we to believe that he's then, he somehow procured a gun and he's then doing forensic countermeasures like disposing of said guns in order not to be detected after the murder? I've got trouble kind of making that connection with the portrait that's been painted of Barry. I think there are quite a lot of problematic things here, to be honest. Things that don't fit, but clearly didn't necessarily matter at the time that those things didn't fit. You know, he had the the hallmarks of everything they were looking for. And he'd now become suspect number one. At this point, though, the police didn't have any concrete evidence. So they began surveillance on him and watched his movements throughout May 2000. The surveillance didn't actually turn up a lot of information for the police, as Barry could be seen out and about, approaching some women for conversation and visiting his usual internet cafes. Despite the odd behaviour of approaching and following women, his days did not give any insight into his possible link to Jill Dando. Yeah, it's like you said, they're basically just going, okay, like this is weakly circumstantial, but, and I don't even necessarily think there was any malice or like this desire to fabricate information in order to, I think it was just the police going, sure, this guy fits, let's just make it fit. And I believe on a level that most of them probably did believe that because they wanted to believe that. I think they were attempting to gather as much information because they, you know, they thought, well, he could be following women, he could be doing this. And I think they thought we might get a breakthrough. We might find something to do with Jill Dando, but it was a long shot, really. DCI Hamish Campbell was in charge of the investigation and he decided to put an undercover officer in place at one of the internet cafes that Barry George frequented. He placed a woman codenamed Sonia into place and her and Barry George began a conversation while being closely watched by investigators. The conversation didn't lead anywhere, nothing much was learned that could aid them in the investigation. When discussing the topic of Jill Dando, Barry George seemed unfazed and simply stated that he'd been questioned, but it had been unfair that they'd entered his house and took his things. I mean, I would have to believe that this is a guy who's really easily agitated as per his behavior at Hayfad or Hafid. So we know that this is somebody who, you know, might be emotionally unstable or mentally unstable. So the fact that she gets into this conversation with him about Jill Dando and he's kind of cool as a cucumber, to Mm -hmm. me, that says that, okay, if he had done something to Jill, I feel like it would have elicited an emotional response. And I think the fact that he wasn't bothered about being questioned or being a suspect 
it tells you something. He was more bothered that they took his things and been into his house. Yeah. You know, he didn't seem to mind that they thought he may have killed Gildando. He just was like, oh, they've took my things. I'm, I'm irritated by it. So I think that kind of gives you an insight into the way he thinks. But the lack of progress with Sonia didn't dampen the investigation, as on the 19th of May 2000, DCI Hamish Campbell would receive a phone call that seemingly made it an open and shut case. The forensic lab had done their investigations of the items that had been removed from Barry George's house and had discovered some evidence. In the pocket of the coat that he had explained that he was wearing that day, they found a particle of gun residue. This particle was extremely small, only a half a thousandth of an inch, but all the same the lab had found it. They believed it to be consistent with the chemical composition of the bullet that killed Jill. It could not say with certainty that the residue would come from the exact bullet that killed her, but it was from a very similar bullet. I mean, if you can't say it's from the exact bullet, it's a little difficult. It is not like they found the shell casings from the gun that had killed Jill at his house. Like, this is just not seeming very concrete. And half a thousandth of an inch, I even struggled to say that, let alone comprehend how small that must be. You know, it's like a dust particle, right? Basically, yeah. But it was enough for the police who'd collated circumstantial and now forensic evidence against Barry George. And they arrested him on the 25th of May 2000. The police continued to interview him and went back to his house to remove more items and to collect dust and fibres that may link to other evidence. He was interviewed regularly during this time, but unlike the other interviews they'd done with him before, Barry was much less willing to talk and had found himself a solicitor. He was asked questions about his interest in guns, his interest in following women, and his reasons for using so many aliases. He answered the questions, but resolutely denied any involvement in the murder of Jill Dando. I think Barry's a problematic person, but I also think that everybody should, you know, in the situation where you have somebody who's visiting a disability center, somebody with a remedial IQ, you should be advising them to get a solicitor because Mm -hmm. this could be a problem later on. People who are in that position who have a lower IQ are more likely to confess falsely to things. So Mm -hmm, definitely. Yeah. And if you don't give them that advice to get a lawyer, this could be overturned later on appeal. I think I don't really I'm not that familiar with the British justice. system. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I think he had the presence of mind to get a solicitor, which which was really, you know, really good. But some people might not have that. Some people might not think to do that in Barry George's situation. And the police should have been recommending, you know, we we get a solicitor before we speak to you because this is serious, you know. I think that speaks to almost the desperation and like the situation the police were in, that they wanted more than anything to kind of get that information, get that confession, any means necessary. Like it almost reminds me of the Central Park Five. You know what I mean? Where police Mm -hmm. are like, you know, basically almost coercing the parents to get these kids alone, to give permission to speak to them alone because they want to believe that these guys are responsible. It's sort of like, and you know, in the end, they were innocent. But the police so badly wanted to believe it was them and were willing to do anything in order to get what they wanted. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage – 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Yeah, that case is absolutely shocking. I can't it believe is. what happened in that. But it's true. And, you know, it was clear. I think it should have been clear at that point that Barry George did have some kind of issues surrounding understanding things. And like I say, he did get a solicitor. And he did speak to the police, but he did deny any involvement. You know, he explained that he'd owned guns and had been part of a gun club, but he didn't own one now. He stated he had no interest in Jill Dando at all. The interview process stopped as Barry George exercised his right to silence. In the time that followed, he took part in an identification parade in which two of Jill's neighbours, including the man who lived next door, were shown a number of different men. Barry George refused to take part in the ID parade, but they were shown his picture in the lineup with others. Many of the neighbours were unable to pick out Barry George as being the man that they'd seen in the street that day. Nevertheless, despite this crucial evidence, the police charged him with murder. Okay, question. Where was it that they found that particle of gunshot residue? In his coat pocket, in the coat that he said he was wearing. And so we know that he used to handle guns and gunshot residue on your hands is a very different thing than in your coat. For all we know, Barry may have never washed this coat since he used to handle guns. So there may have been gunshot residue remaining. It does come up in the trial about the evidence that was found and how it was found and you know, obviously it was such a small particle. It could, it could literally have come from anywhere, couldn't it? You know? Yeah. But it was enough for the police, which is difficult anyway. It's problematic. But the trial began in October 2000 and it was discussed heavily in the press and on the TV. The trial of Jill Dando, the presenter that everyone loved, caused many to be angry at the man that was on trial for it. The public got behind the trial and interest in it was huge. It was like any big and sensationalized story. Rumors and uncorroborated stories about Barry George and the type of man he was began to swirl. Many of these stories in hindsight were incorrect and didn't help Barry George's chances at trial. The furore surrounding both Jill's death and the trial caused many people to wrongly speculate their own theories and come up with exaggerated headlines. You know, the two cases that I think of when I think of the British press and exaggerated headlines are Claudia Lawrence and Madeleine McCann. Yeah. Yeah. And it's clear that Jill had that level of fame too, right? That the public was so invested in this that the press also has kind of a motivation in printing uncorroborated or salacious stories because what's going to sell papers and papers were a thing at the time that's going to sell papers, salacious stories, all of these things probably digging into Barry's background, maybe making incorrect connections. I'm sure they just went wild. I was going to say, I don't think it was difficult for the press to find these stories about Barry because I think he 
he publicized them himself. You know, he was happy to talk about things he'd done <laughs> in his true. life. So I don't think it actually took a lot to kind of come up with these stories and go, oh, well, obviously this must be the guy because he's done this, that, and that, you know, and, and his, his criminal history didn't make good, good reading. So it, it will have seemed a bit like an open and shut case with the way that the media made it. The prosecution's case was based on the identification of one of the witnesses in Gowan Avenue, the timing of his visit to Hafad, and the forensic evidence that had been found in the pocket of Barry George's coat. While this evidence pointed in Barry George's direction, there were still quite a lot of inconsistencies for the defence team to argue. The case against him was mostly circumstantial, aside from that particle of gun residue that had been found. I mean, sure, that's forensic evidence, but you can't prove when that gun residue got into his pocket or from where. It's like finding blood. If you find, you know, just a spot of blood, you can't date when that blood got there if it's not fresh. So these things can be problematic. It's just one particle of gunshot residue. I think, yes, it is forensic evidence, but I believe it to be weakly circumstantial here. And I think a lot of the evidence they had was more evidence of Barry George's character and not actually about his connection to Jill. You know, quite a lot of the stuff they found in his house pointed to him following women, but not following Jill. So it was a bit of a an unusual link to make. And yeah. during the pre-trial, the defense team led by Michael Mansfield QC successfully got some of that evidence excluded, including the witnesses that had seen some of Barry George's stalking habits the photographs of the women that had been found, and part of Jill's neighbour's statement. The defence team also argued that pre-trial publicity had not helped their client's case, and perhaps the trial should not take place at the time and place that it was going to, the old Bailey in London. Yeah, so I'm not an attorney or what do you guys call it, barrister or solicitor, Mm -hmm. but I still think that some of these things shouldn't have been let in at trial because they're extremely prejudicial. So you're basically putting Barry... George's character on trial here. And yeah, we can see he's a problematic individual with really bad patterns of stalking women. And these sorts of things to a jury are going to look like, yeah, this guy could have done it. Look at all these other things he's done. And if he didn't do it, oh, well, he's a bad guy. Let's get him off the streets. You don't want to kind of have that atmosphere of, oh, well, he's guilty of something. And When you give too much prejudicial information, like I feel as though they did here, and don't get me wrong, I can see why the prosecution did so, because they're trying to get as much information in as they can. Mm -hmm. Basically, the responsibility is on the defense to get that evidence excluded. I don't think think it was very ethical to let so much of that information in, because it wasn't relevant, quite a lot of it, to Jill's case. As much as it built a picture, sometimes you can have too much information, and it just... Obviously, with the press putting all of these other stories out there, I don't think it helped at all. And, you know, he he deserved a fair trial at the end of the day. He deserved to have what everybody else has. You know, he's innocent until proven guilty, not already being judged before he gets to trial. And that's a great point, right? We just have to remember that just because Barry George is guilty of this, you know, indecent assault on a woman and he's got these stalking behaviors. Yes, those things are problematic and it does speak to a bad pattern. But that does not mean that he is any less deserving of a fair trial than anybody else. No. And when the trial began, it didn't look certain at all that the prosecution would get a conviction based on this very circumstantial evidence. Michael Mansfield QC is a prominent barrister who'd worked on a number of high-profile cases, including the Hillsborough disaster, and worked on the inquest into the deaths of Dodiel Fayed and Jean-Charles Menezes. 
after he was shot by police in a London underground station. He brought with him the experience of working on other prominent cases and questioned the witnesses for the prosecution relentlessly in order to poke holes in the case. So this guy sounds like a bit of a rock star as far as like he's dealing with big deaths. If he's working on, I don't know who Charles Day Menezes is, but I do know who Dodie Alfayette is. Mm -hmm. Well, John Charles de Menezes, I can never say his name properly, so I apologize. But he was linked to the 7-7 bombings. They thought he was a suspect and he was walking through a tube station in London and Metropolitan Police had been following him because they thought he was one of the fugitives. It happened two weeks before he was walking through the tube station and police shot him 11 times, seven times in the head. And he wasn't part of the bombings. He had nothing to do with it. He was innocent. that's, That's really embarrassing for the police. That's terrible. Yeah. He did. He worked on quite controversial cases. So I don't think it was surprising that he uh, took up the defense of Barry George because, again, it was a quite a controversial and high profile case. So in England, like I know in America, it's quite common for lawyers to do and for law firms, even very prominent law firms to do a certain percentage of pro bono work. Is that common in the UK as well? I think it is. I don't know if there's a expectation of it. I'm not I'm not too sure of that, but I think there is. Yeah. I think they, you know, if they're passionate about a case, they'll definitely take them on. And I think if you're like a big time lawyer, what better case to get involved in? Because he probably sees there's absolutely like zero concrete evidence to tie this individual. And he probably feels passionately that he's getting railroaded, but also the connection yeah. to Jill Dando, that is great publicity. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, you know, that was what he he did. Like I said, he wanted to be involved in those controversial cases. And I think he he clearly took pride in in poking holes in things and finding inconsistencies. And that was what Barry George needed in this trial. You know, they the trial continued and the prosecution brought forward one witness who could identify Barry George, a woman who was passing in the car in Gowan Avenue at the time and their forensic evidence. The defence put forward a case there was malpractice on the part of the police and it was argued that their actions were done in an unethical manner. This was referring to the police not following the correct procedures when they took Barry George's original statements. Well, we spoke- A bit like we were talking about before, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, like we spoke to this. This is pretty obvious that it was like the ends justifies the means. We don't care if we're trampling all over his rights. This guy has diminished capacity due to a remedial low IQ or some kind of, you know, mental health difficulties. There is something going on here that says, you know, you guys should stop. You should recommend he get a solicitor, you know, regroup. But they wanted to get their guy. They were willing to do anything to do it. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got one witness who's putting him there. Eyewitness identification in and of itself is so problematic. You know what I mean? You've only got Mm -hmm. one. If you've got 10 witnesses that can place him there, I'm much more inclined to think there's a you know greater probability that it may have in fact been Barry, but just one woman, that just isn't enough. It's not. Eyewitness testimony isn't good evidence anyway. It's difficult to prove. And I just find it interesting that she was just passing by in the car and actually it wasn't one of her neighbours that had actually seen the man or had seen anything else that could identify him. It was somebody just passing by in the car who obviously said, yeah, it could have been him. But that's not not good enough evidence, really, to take to trial. No. And so you've got to wonder, like, did somebody like put a little pressure on her? Like, hey, this is the guy you saw. I mean, it's but there's potential that it may have been unethical. And at the time, 
I'm sure that the investigators were well-meaning, but sometimes Mm -hmm. people get a little too close to that line, right? And they kind of abandon those ethics in order to get a conviction on a case which there is an extreme amount of public pressure. And this case just, I'm sure they were feeling the heat at this point. They had to believe he needs to be the guy. He's the guy. We need to make this fit. So they had the witness testimony and then they had the forensic evidence. And they put it in front of the court as definitive evidence. Not only had Barry George admitted that he was wearing this coat at the time of the murder, but the forensic evidence of the gun residue had later been found in the pocket of this coat. This did appear to be damning evidence on first glance. And for this reason, Michael Mansfield QC had been refused when he'd asked for this evidence against his client to be excluded. The defence tackled this particular allegation by pointing out to the jury that the coat had been dry cleaned and worn for a year before the police had took it into evidence. And in fact, due to the small amount of residue, there was the possibility that it had come from contamination in the lab. And there we go. It's been worn for a year, so we cannot date and timestamp this gun residue. And just like you said, what was it like one half of a thousandth of a thousand? Hard to say. <laughs> it is so hard to say. <laughs> yeah, this minuscule particle and basically... It could have got there by any means. Maybe it was contamination at the lab, but even if it wasn't, we know that he used to handle guns. So there is the potential that it could have got there at a far later date, and they're just discovering it now and tying it to this case. It doesn't matter, in my opinion, that he was wearing this jacket at the time, because we don't know when that gunshot residue got there. No. And Michael Mansfield, he tried to point out that the coat had been photographed by police at a photography studio before being bagged up and sent to the lab. The argument being there was no way to know if the residue had been transferred at that location. The defence tried extremely hard to discredit the chain of evidence in the case. The Crown Prosecution put everything damning against Barry George in front of the jury. And like in every criminal case, the defence had an argument against it. Barry George himself did not testify in the trial as medical professionals had deemed him not to be fit to stand trial due to the concerns about his epilepsy. I mean, I'm thankful that Barry George at least has a really good lawyer at this point, right? Because he would have just been railroaded to the nth degree if he would have got like a public defender or just, you know, any Tom, Dick or Harry off the street. But this is a case where they really want a conviction and they're putting so many resources into securing said conviction that you really can only have the best defending Barry George at this point. Otherwise, he would have just been a goner. Yeah, definitely. Even though there were so many inconsistencies and the the prosecution didn't really have a lot of evidence, they're making it seem a lot more, the evidence a lot bigger than it was. The two sides presented closing arguments and the jury were sent to deliberate and everyone waited with bated breath for the result, as truly no one knew what it was going to be. On the sixth day of deliberation, after looking at Barry George's coat one more time, the jury came back with a verdict and he was found guilty of the murder of Jill Dando. Oh, this evidence is just not concrete at all. We keep using the word tenuous because it is literally the best way to describe it. It's weak. Yeah. And the the jury looks at the coat and it's like, that is the thing that convinces you. This isn't DNA. This isn't something super compelling. It's not a murder weapon. It's one tiny little particle of gunshot residue that we don't know when it got there. No, it's interesting they wanted to look at it because it, it, yeah, like you say, it's not like it was, you could actually see anything on this coat. You know, it was a tiny little particle that had been found in the pocket. So what were they 
it would be interesting to know what they were looking at when they were examining that coat. What were they thinking? You know, how was that informing their opinion? And quick offside, the jacket that they're that they're looking at here, that they're examining for this gunshot residue particle, which obviously they cannot see with the naked eye, mm-hmm. it isn't a barber jacket, is it? I don't think so. No, I think it's just a brown jacket. Mm, okay. It's just the same color, but not actually, I don't think it was similar at all from what I remember of the pictures. I don't think it was actually similar to the type of jacket. Because like you said, a barber jacket was, you know, people who are relatively affluent or, you know, have some kind of means would afford a barber jacket. And Barry George wasn't somebody of means. No, you know, we're shocked by the result. And at the time, there was shock in the courtroom because lots of people had believed that the prosecution's case was weak and many didn't believe there would be a conviction. The publicity had already been massive in the case and this didn't let up in the aftermath of the conviction. Barry George was sentenced to life imprisonment and his defense began proceedings to lodge an appeal in the case. Well, yeah, I'm sure they're going to lodge an appeal because this is such a weak case to believe that he was convicted on this. The evidence, there's, it's just not there. It's scant. It's weak. It's tenuous. It's mostly circumstantial. We've got one eyewitness in one tiny little particle of gunshot residue. And then we've got these clippings of Jill And all of this prejudicial information that was allowed in about the stalking, even if that was, you know, they were going to strike it from the court record, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Once it's out, once the jury's heard it, it's out there forever. And I can only think if this had been an average case, you know, not one about a celebrity, you know, it wasn't involving Jill Dando. I don't think this this conviction would have been made. But I think because of the pressure that it was it was Jill Dando's murder and the amount of publicity, I think it, it just got. It just got too much, I think. Yeah, like what you're saying about, you know, because it was Jill Dando, I think the attitude of police, how they very much wanted to make it fit. We also have to look at the flip side. There's a potential that the jury may have wanted to make it fit. This is a very beloved woman, right? And it's not that they're not trying, but they're being sold this story that they so much want to believe is true. They want to believe this monster who killed the beloved Jill Dando is taken off the streets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Barry George's appeal began the following year, July 2002, and Barry George's defence team explained that they believed his conviction was unsafe due to the ambiguity surrounding the forensic evidence that was put forward. I've never heard that phrase before. His conviction was unsafe. That must be a British phrase. Yeah, it's it's what you'd say if it was basically unsound justice or, yeah, there wasn't enough evidence and that it gets deemed unsafe. It's, um, you know, not a concrete conviction. There are things wrong with it. The issues that they had with the forensic evidence at the trial, its possibility of contamination and the length of time the coat had been unchecked were crucial to their appeal. The idea the jury had been misled by the significance of the forensic evidence was also brought up as the defence team believed the evidence should not have been let in in the first place. Well, I think that is a pretty strong argument. I don't think most of this stuff should have been let in in the first place. Like we've spoken about throughout all of that prejudicial information that doesn't pertain directly to the murder of Jill Dando. All it does is serve to prejudice the jury against Barry. Mm -hmm. And there were also issues put forward about the use of an undercover officer in order to elicit a confession. This had an uneasy history with the Metropolitan Police, who'd used a similar honey trap strategy when investigating the murder of Rachel Nickel in 1992. Yeah, so this really reminds me of, there's this really famous case and it's out of Canada. And okay, so it was basically Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay 
they murder Atifra Faye's family. Like they're convicted of doing it, but they originally, so Sebastian Burns is from Canada originally. And I think Atifra Faye's family lived in the U.S. And so the murder actually took place in the U.S. So the two went back to Canada, I believe, to where, you know, Sebastian was from. I think they'd originally met there and then, you know, Atifra Faye's family moved. I can't be 100% sure, so don't quote me. But they went back. They were just kind of chilling out and like living this life. And they somehow got the police were like, all right, well, you know, we can't use entrapment in the U.S. But in Canada, they do this thing called Mr. Big. And it's basically like they get this guy to pose as like this gangster or mob boss. And he basically says, hey, like, I'm going to let you into this organization. But if I do, I need something from you first. What you're going to do is you're going to tell me where the bodies are buried. You're going to tell me who you killed and give me all the details because I need some information on you. Then I know you're not going to turn on me. And they fell for it. And they admitted to murdering Atifra Faye's family. And that's what sealed the deal. But it was really controversial because they used the Canadian evidence to convict them in American court. I have heard of that before. I have heard of that case and the whole scenario with Mr. Big. And I did, I did think it was strange that they would be asking that kind of thing. You know, you, you know, would you think these people would just come up to you and start asking you these questions and you just say, yeah, okay, I did it. You know, it is, it's another problematic thing that, you know, getting someone to elicit a confession when they don't actually really know what they're telling it to you for, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? And in the case of Rachel Nickel, they decided that a man named Colin Stagg fit the profile of the killer and used an undercover officer to elicit a confession. While Stagg never confessed, the police felt they'd gained enough information from those conversations to convict him of the murder. At the trial in 1994, the strategy failed miserably as the judge ruled that the police had used deception to try and incriminate a suspect. And he was then officially acquitted. That makes sense. I mean, I just... I think you need to go through ethical or legal means in order to elicit, you know, in order to get a confession, you need, you can't be tricking somebody. I, I've got a bit of an issue with entrapment. I don't think Canada should be able to use it. I don't think UK, they should be able to use it. I mean, the American justice system, flawed as it is, that is one thing that they've got right, that entrapment is illegal. Yeah, it just causes problems for your case then later on down the line, doesn't it? Yeah, In all of these cases, it seems to just cause issues rather than actually prove anything. And when people are wrongly convicted, that's when, you know, you think, oh, why are police using these strategies? When I talk to like my co-host on the Path on Chile, Dr. Ashley Wellman, all the time about, who's a criminologist, all the time about this. And she said that these strategies that investigators employ, doesn't matter which country they're from, these strategies are used to elicit a confession. They're great on a guilty person, but if you're innocent, you better watch out because false confessions can come on really easily when pressure is applied. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? 
Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And particularly in certain types of people, you know, vulnerable people are going to be much more likely to say things that they don't mean, to come up with something that think the police want to hear. I mean, there's so many cases where that's happened. And Barry George, you know, the defence were arguing, was one of these people because the information surrounding his psychological assessments during his time on remand before the trial was also brought up. These assessments established that he did have personality disorders and elements of ADHD and possibly Asperger's syndrome. The assessments concluded that he had an IQ of 76, which would be classed as cognitively impaired. The test showed without a doubt that Barry George would have struggled to understand the process of the trial and possibly the way in which his own statements may have been taken by others, particularly the police. The information was looked at by the Court of Appeal, but three judges rejected the claim. In December that year, the House of Lords refused Barry George the right to any further appeal in his case. So Barry George is not only dealing with a very low IQ, He's also dealing with a myriad of, you know, mental health diagnoses, a possible, mm-hmm. possible Asperger's. Maybe he's on the spectrum. They're not saying definitively if he is or he isn't. He's got ADHD. And if he's dealing with, you know, personality disorders, like multiple personality, not multiple personality disorder, but multiple no, but, different yeah. personality <laughs> Several. disorders. Several. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if he was just, you know, dealing with, for example, histrionic personality disorder and borderline personality disorder, both are cluster B disorders. These are disorders that are very difficult to treat. You can't treat them like you can, for example, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or even ADHD. It's not something that's easily treatable. And then when you couple that with, you know, Asperger's, you've got these sorts of disorders where the comorbidity is high and that you commonly see one link to another, the probability is higher that you will then have another one. I mean, Barry George is operating at an extreme disadvantage when you couple this with his low IQ. So it seems like he's just such a vulnerable person. And I know there's plenty of people listening who go, oh, like, look at his behavior. It's so terrible. But we still need to protect the most vulnerable members of society even if those vulnerable members of society have at one time been convicted of a crime. And I think we need to look at how, you know, if you were in that situation, how would you want to be treated by the police and by the prosecution? You know, would you want to just have evidence thrown at you that you can't argue with, but isn't actually strong enough to convict you of anything? You know, you'd want to be treated properly. And Barry George deserves to be treated properly as well. You know, we We don't know at this point if he did it or not. You know, he's been convicted of it, but there are lots of problems with it and they should be looked at, you know, properly and by the relevant people. And it looked like this would be it for Barry George and the conviction would stay. The public were at first divided by the conviction as it was unsure what the motive for the murder was. Many were certain that Barry George was an odd man and his stalking habits of other women were clearly dangerous. However, the link with Jill Dando had not been obviously set out in the trial and many people were left wondering why. The years moved on and the family and friends of Jill slowly continued on with their lives, with her loss never truly going away. Yeah, I can imagine for Jill's family that I don't know what their feelings were on, you know, Barry, if they believed that he was the guy and that, you know, the investigators and the prosecutor and the jury convicted the right man. 
But I think there's that element of family finding peace in, okay, you know, Jill's been murdered, but they caught the man. He's now in jail. There's an element of justice and an element of resolution there. So I think it's easier to believe that than it is to start examining kind of the minutia of the case and finding problem after problem with the evidence. I don't know how the family felt, but my heart just breaks for them. And, you know, they obviously had been told by the police that this is who had done it. And, you know, for them, like you say, they might feel like they had a resolution. But in the years following, the uncertainty surrounding his conviction began to spread and public sentiment began to be that he was actually innocent of the crime. In 2006, five years after his conviction for the murder, it emerged the new legal team for George had put forward new evidence in this case. It had been submitted to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, who referred it to the Court of Appeal. The crucial new evidence was not new in its entirety. It was, in fact, the same forensic evidence that had been so controversial at the original trial. The developments in forensic testing had come a long way since the original testing. They believed that this would prove forensic evidence meaningless in this case. The fact that the forensic evidence was also not presented accurately to the jury was named as a problem as the jury were told the gun residue matched the gun that killed Jill, when in fact the residue could have come from any gun of that type, not just that particular gun. This evidence is so problematic just to begin with. And I also feel like there's an element of, did we not instruct the jury originally that upon examination of this coat that, you know, Barry George was wearing, one cannot see this gunshot residue. Why is this the deciding factor when you're going to, you know, victim of the murder of Jill Dando? It just, it really bothers me. It's something that stands out that like before they said guilty, they wanted to look at the coat. Like, what are you going to see when you look at this coat? I don't know. I think it proves that that forensic evidence, as weak as it was, had actually had an impact on the jury. They did think, oh, that is a crucial bit of evidence we need to really concentrate on, even though it was weak and it couldn't actually be proven it had anything to do with Jill. You know, the court upheld the appeal due to the fact that forensic scientists concluded the particle was found that was found was too small to say where it had come from and couldn't be conclusively linked to the gun. A retrial was ordered with the exclusion of the forensic evidence in 2008. The retrial went ahead with the original circumstantial evidence that had been presented at the trial, and when the jury returned after deliberation, the verdict was completely different. Barry George was then acquitted of the murder of Jill Dando. I mean, thank God he was acquitted of the murder, but part of me is shocked because it's one of those things where, you know, the prosecution is going to present their case, the judge is going to say, you know, these items are excluded, but every single citizen of the UK had to be extremely aware of all of the details of the trial of Barry George and the evidence that they had against him because it was printed in the papers, in the press every single day. So even if Mm -hmm. you don't present that evidence, how does one, one of the jurors exclude that when they're making that decision? So I think it's a really good thing that he was acquitted because it's so hard to find a completely impartial jury who's unaware of the previous trial and all of the details. I'm surprised that the prosecution went ahead without the forensic evidence. You know, I'm surprised that they tried to build a case purely on that circumstantial evidence because it clearly wasn't. It wasn't strong with the forensic evidence, so it definitely wasn't strong with just the circumstantial. So I'm surprised that they went ahead with it all, but I suppose they wanted to prove, no, we got the investigation right, we're sure this is our man, and it just failed. It just didn't go well for them. 
We see this all the time, though, I think when you see prosecutors or police departments doubling down, it seems all too obvious that your case isn't strong. Like we see them do it in the U.S. where they will try the same thing over and over when there's the hung jury Mm -hmm. and they get a hung jury a couple different times. They aren't able to get a unanimous decision. And yet they move forward and do this again and again and again. And at great cost to the taxpayers. And you've got to feel like this is an ego project at this point. Like I was right. I want to prove I was right. It's less about securing the conviction because you believe that that's justice and more about looking good to those people that elected you into that position with regards to the U.S. Yeah, I'm always surprised by how many times I do see that, actually. They just keep carrying on you know, we'll go to another trial and another trial. And you'd think at some point they'd say, you know, we've got to admit maybe we were, maybe we don't have enough evidence. You know, it's not, it's not like a personal slight towards prosecutors and prosecutions. You know, it's not a personal thing. If you've not got enough evidence, you shouldn't be presenting it. I don't think. We see it with pathologists too, though, right? When you see there's a suspicious death and trying to get something changed from suicide to murder. I've seen, I remember one case where it was like a panel of pathologists and They basically said, we recommend that you change this ruling from suicide to at least undetermined. We believe it was murder. And the pathologist disagreed. They would not change their ruling because they wanted to be right over being just. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's difficult when your personal feelings, I think, get, get kind of mixed in with what should be an unbiased opinion, really. But for the defence, it was a result of years of work trying to prove Barry George's innocence. For the prosecution and the police, it was a different story, however. The police had to begin the task of explaining that they hadn't found the correct person in 2000, and in fact they didn't know who killed Jill. Barry George had spent eight years of his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit, and after his release he took the steps necessary to get some compensation back for the time that he'd been wrongfully convicted. I mean, I believe that everybody who's wrongfully convicted deserves to get some kind of financial compensation for the years and the time lost. I also think that there is an emotional and a psychological toll that isn't always addressed. This interrupts somebody's life. This You incarcerate them. You put them in jail. What do they deal with while they're there? I think there's so many different factors that need to be considered when giving somebody who's had a wrongful conviction compensation. And he's explained in interviews that in 2000, the police took his possessions and none of them has been returned to him. He's been fighting since his release to gain both an apology and monetary compensation, neither of which he's received. Well, that's kind of upsetting. I mean, I can see how some people are like, well, whatever, you know, this guy's a bad guy and he doesn't deserve it. I think the fact is the police kind of railroaded him here. And I'm not saying that they intentionally there was this conspiracy to try to convict him. I think that they believed it and they were trying to make it fit. And you basically have to have this whole paradigm shift for them to walk it back and say, I'm sorry, we got it wrong. I think all too often you see law enforcement give a monetary compensation before they're going to say, we're sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And new legislation brought in in 2014 means that those who were wrongfully convicted must prove their innocence beyond a reasonable doubt to be able to gain compensation. Barry George and his family have told the media that they're disgusted with this and believe that his life has been ruined enough without having to prove his innocence once again, despite already being acquitted at trial. His compensation claims have so far been dismissed. Okay, did I hear that right? Okay, so it's a wrongful conviction. So -hmm. then this person has to, the burden of proof is then on them to prove their innocence, to prove your innocence. 
you almost have to prove the guilt of somebody else. Yeah, it kind of seems like you have to find the person who killed Jill before we will give you any compensation and say you're innocent. I I, I can't. It's crazy. I didn't ever think that that was... I thought if you were wrongfully convicted, you would get something back for it because they took eight years of your life. And, you know, I can't believe that you then have to go about trying to find, do the police's job for them, basically. Even if you aren't innocent, like say that somebody is wrongfully convicted, they may have been the one that did it, but the evidence that put them away was obtained illegally or by some, you know, some other reason makes it a wrongful conviction, right? It doesn't necessarily mean they didn't do it. Some people bring up the case of like Darlie Routier. A lot of people believe she's guilty, but some people think she was wrongfully convicted due to the level of reasonable doubt. So at that point, even if that person had done it, if you didn't have enough to convict them in a legal way or in a ethical or moral way with, you know, that's in line with the law, then is that person, you know, guilty or not guilty, not entitled to that level of compensation? I just think that it's so far outside the realm of what the average person is capable of doing to be able to prove their innocence, you know, basically by proving the guilt of somebody else. So I think the majority of wrongful convictions, typically the people are innocent. So these innocent people then have to go and prove their innocence. Like, what does Mm -hmm. that cost? You've got a government that's just basically shielding themselves from ever having to make any kind of monetary compensation. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you're you're right. You know, there is a difference between being acquitted at trial and being innocent. You know, there is there is that difference. And I guess that is what they're getting at with that legislation. You know, you might have been acquitted, but, you know, we don't know that you're innocent. Therefore, we're not going to give you the money. But, you you know, it's true. How is how are they going to prove that? I don't know how you would prove that beyond a reasonable doubt, aside from the information that's been presented already at trial. It's it is it's really confusing that that would be what you, you, you have to do after getting out of prison for all those years, you then have to come across this massive hurdle. And it's, yeah. it's hard. You're already having to live in a different way. You know, you've, you've been in prison for that many years. You have to accustom back to, to life outside and you've got this huge burden then put on you. You're essentially um, having to prove a negative. Yeah. And so any other investigation into the murder of Jill Dando has not been officially released by the Metropolitan Police since Barry George's acquittal. However, they have stated that they welcome any new leads and information. Despite the fact that no new leads have been officially found over the years, there have been many possible theories in the case investigated by both the public and high-profile figures. In the next episode, we will look at the many theories that have been put forward in Jill's case and discuss how credible these theories may be. I can't wait to get into the theories. So Caprice, where can my listeners find you and the Unseen podcast on social media? I'm on Facebook at The Unseen Podcast, where I also have a discussion group. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, and have a channel on YouTube where I upload all new episodes if you want to have a listen over there. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the conclusion of our series on the murder of Jill Dando. If you want to reach out and say hello or with feedback, you can hit me up on Twitter at Podcast Riddle, or you can email me at riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. If you want to support the show, you can make a one-time PayPal donation to riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Buy Me a Coffee at all one word, brittle me that pod. Until next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything. I'm Mike Morford, and I've been researching the Zodiac case for years. Zodiac, just the name. It sounds sinister. It inspires fear. The fact that a serial killer would give himself this moniker is disturbing. He would go on to taunt police by sending letters and codes to newspapers for years. 
and the attacks, they were something else altogether. If you were a young couple in a secluded area, you could easily be a target. And it wasn't just shootings on dark lovers' lanes. Zodiac would even attack with a knife in broad daylight while wearing an executioner-style hood. After a while, Zodiac changed tactics, and even lone cab drivers weren't safe. The Zodiac Killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and then vanished, but he left a lot of clues behind along the way. Clues that we're going to examine closely on the new podcast, Zodiac Speaking. New episodes of Zodiac Speaking come out every other Saturday starting March 13, 2021. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.